Shalom and welcome to Nourish Your Biblical Roots Conversations with Yael. I'm your host, Yael Eckstein, President and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. On my weekly podcast, I invite thought leaders, authors, pastors, and other religious leaders, politicians, and influencers to share their views on Jewish-Christian relations, Israel, and other issues that are of key importance to people of faith. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming Aliza Ben Shalom, star of the popular Netflix series, Jewish Matchmaking, a self-professed soulmate clarity coach, in-demand speaker, and author. Aliza, an Orthodox Jew, has been married for 20 years, has been carrying on the long-held Jewish tradition of Shiduchim, the Hebrew word for an arranged marriage, since she started her business in her home in 2007. Over the past 16 years, Eliza has helped more than 200 couples find their soulmates. In addition to her Netflix series, which debuted in May of this year, Eliza offers online courses on dating and coaching with her team of nine matchmakers through her website, marriagemindedmentor.com. She has two podcasts, The Yentas and and The Matchmaker, where she partners with the love rabbi, Rabbi Israel Bernath, to answer questions about dating and finding your soulmate. In addition to all of that, Aliza is the mother of five incredible children and one adorable dog who actually we have to edit that because who just had puppies, (laughs) six adorable dogs, one mother and five puppies. Aliza, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. So wait, it's one adorable dog and six puppies. So it's seven total right now. (laughs) Okay. That sounds like a full house for somebody who's doing a world speaking tour. You want a dog? (laughs) (laughs) We will definitely come over and visit those cute little puppies soon. (laughs) There are some things that you say that, you know, I just can't say no to. When Corona started, we uh, fostered 16 puppies from Bethlehem and we found them all homes. But when we hear the word puppy, it's hard for us to (laughs) think about anything else, if you know what I mean. That's so sweet. Really amazing. Yeah. So Aliza, you are incredible and you are both a modern superwoman who's carrying on these kind of biblical traditions of matchmaking that can be traced back directly to the Torah and Abraham when he sent his servant out to find his son a wife. How did you get interested in matchmaking? Tell us about your journey there. I think I was always interested, even from a young age, in relationships and in marriage. And I would watch people, you know, I'd watch my family members. I would watch random people on the street. And um, when I was growing up, so I grew up secular and I became observant uh, in my mid-20s. So growing up secular, we were always trying to set each other up. But I was really the one doing that more than anybody else. I was always trying to set up friends in high school, in college. College. Uh, I did make a few matches there. Ooh. And yeah, and a young then, matchmaker. Right, right. Started young and, and very organically. And then I spoke with a friend of mine. I had, you know, I got married. I had two young children. And I said, I want to do something from home. I want to give back to the community. I don't know what to do. And she said, Oh, well, I'm like a part-time matchmaker online and I do online matchmaking. I'm like, Oh, tell me more. What does that mean? And that was really how I got my foot in the door with matchmaking. 
Wow. Wow. And it's become increasingly popular in uh, the latest years. I think as people want to go from the step of dating to getting married, that they look towards a matchmaker to see who's really ready for a serious relationship, to build that home, to go into commitment. Um, And I think most people, when they hear matchmaker, whether you're Jewish or Christian or anything in between, think of Fiddler on the roof. Is that how it works? Do you just <laughs> when I want to do 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 and then they're, they find each other, right? Or that one, <laughs> right? All you got, all you got to do is sing the song, and then poof, the person appears. Incredible. So it's not, it's not as magical uh, as the show might make it seem. Um, but I do think that they show also the challenges of what's really involved in matchmaking, which is that we have to get very. Uh, acquainted with the person that we're working with and we have to go out into the world and we're really headhunters. If you think of it like from a business perspective, we are searching for their person. They could be anywhere. They could be in any time zone and um, they they may just be also right around the corner in somebody's back pocket where like, oh, I dated somebody two years ago and you might not even realize, actually, that's your person. You missed them. We need to go back. So um, matchmaking is, yes, this age old tradition, but the modern way of doing it involves a lot of uh, digital resources. We do have databases. We definitely use things like social media. And then we also do our grassroots networking through all of our international uh, matchmakers across the globe. And we are affiliated with Um, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Muslim matchmakers, I'll call it faith-based matchmakers that are also from across the globe. And we find, I think what we really find is that faith-based matchmaking has a lot in common. Number one, we all believe in a higher power. Number two, we are all looking to marry somebody who has this deep connection with their roots and with their faith, because we know that that's the foundation and the core of building a relationship. So there really is a lot that we have in common and uh, we, we collaborate often. It's very, very interesting. Amazing. Um, as it says in, in the Bible, my house is a house of prayer for all the nations. That what holds us all together so much is this notion of prayer, of, of responding to a higher power, of knowing that we are, um, as we say in Hebrew, I'm your servant, that we're all here just to be God's servants. So to find our partner and the family in order to do that with seems like a really holy mission. We've been hearing a lot about the breakdown of the family in Western culture specifically and the breakdown of marriage. Is this something that you're seeing as you're working in the faith-based sphere of um, matchmaking? Or do you think for people of faith, it's more or less stayed traditional as we've known it for hundreds of years? I think... I would say yes and yes. Yes, I think that there is a breakdown. Um, I think that what we are seeing is that there is a higher rate of divorce than it used to be. So what we find in the Jewish community, uh, I think the divorce rate was around 10% in the religious observant community. And now it's closer to 20 or pushing 20%. But compared to the secular community, which is somewhere between 50 to over 60% of a divorce rate, we're still doing pretty well. And I think that that is universal among Um, people of faith within the world, although we have our roots, we have our traditions, we do still have the influence of the modern world. And there's, it's a lot easier for the family to break down because there's 
even media, all the things that we're being fed, even if we filter them, even if we filter them to a high degree, it's still seeping in more than it than ever before. So that I think is a really great challenge for all faith-based communities. But in terms of how we're doing, it is much better than the average. That's for sure. People still want to get married. Do they still believe in this notion of marriage that that it's a, a given that you reach a certain age, you're in your young 20s or late 20s, early 30s? Is marriage still that guiding star as it's been for generations? Absolutely not. Sadly, it's really not. Again, faith-based communities, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of that or or where there's a less or lower observance level or connection um, to your faith, we're not seeing that as much. So what we are seeing is, I'll call it late blooming marriages, which is mid-30s, early 40s, mid-40s, even late 40s. That's when people are waking up and, and finding the, oh, I need to do this. I didn't check this off my list. I got the job. I I got the money. I got the house. I got the car. Oh, wait, I forgot to put the family in there. Let me go back and insert family. Uh, and I think if you look at all of the studies from across the world, you'll see that marriage is no, not popular at the moment. Although right now dating and matchmaking is extremely popular in the media, which is really a tremendous blessing because it will bring marriage back. It's the question is, but what is the purpose of dating? So as long as the dating leads to marriage and not just to dating, then we're okay. And um, other shows like just for example, Love is Blind, which is a very popular show on Netflix they their whole goal right let's get them to uh the down the aisle let's get them to that moment of bringing them together and let's do it based on values not just based on externals so there is a notion of this and like i i think like i think marriage is making a comeback but i think that we've been out of style for a while Wow. So it seems like everyone has put such a focus on the exterior, on the material of developing their career, of getting that car. And suddenly, once you reach the heights of materialism, you realize that it's not really worth much if you don't have anyone to share it with. Right. And and it's it's not that it's a little too late. It's never too late. I've matched people as old as 89. Oh. So I, yeah, I really believe. Okay, it's tell never- us that story. <laughs> Never too late. So um, actually, her son found me in synagogue and in temple. And he said, Hi, I need you to help my mother. I said, Okay. He said, Well, you know, she's she's 88 about to be 89. I said, Okay. <laughs> I said, listen, in terms of matchmaking, we do more of what I call mystery in your history, which is who's already in her network that we can connect her to, um, or how can we expand her network so that we can make introductions? I said, but it's not about, you know, an introduction matchmaking service per se. He said, no problem. She would love to speak with you. She would love to work with you. I said, okay. And I went over to her house. I met with her in person. We talked about it. She said there was one gentleman that was interested in her and he had you know like let's have dinner together and she said he just he talks a little too much <laughs> I said okay I hear that I said listen do we have any other options no or do you want to go to other social groups no you know like I'm happy I'm more introverted I like my thing I said listen maybe 
this is the best option we have. Maybe you should say to him, I like you. You like me. There's a little something here. You talk a little too much for me. I need a little less. Open communication. Open communication. And and if that happens, I think this could work. And that's exactly what she did. And that's how we made the match. And her son was so happy and she was so happy. It was great. That is incredible. I love that. That's so nice. So you you have such a rewarding job. And um as we've seen on the Netflix series, it's it's also challenging. You work with a lot of people who think that they want to get married and you have to determine if they're really ready or not. What are you looking for? What are signs that somebody who wants to get married is really ready for that? I like to talk about a timeline and I want to know what their vision is. So uh, some of the people you might hear, we talk about it a little bit and they're telling me like, oh, you know, I could get married in whatever, four years. And I said, okay, so when are you going to get engaged? I don't know if I find the right person, two years, three years. And I said, oh, okay. So my definition of marriage minded is not that. (laughs) That's called dating minded. You just want to date if, when you should find the right person. Maybe you'll advance your relationship that maybe you should get married one day. Um, to me, I would say marriage minded is defined as looking to date and find the right person, somebody who is committed to figuring out, are you my person within six months? You don't have to get married. You don't need to get engaged, but I want you to date seriously with that in mind. And then at that six month mark, you can make a decision. Okay. Now, when do I want to move to the next step? And to be honest, ideally, I don't love relationships going over the one year mark because if I know that you're for me and I know that I'm for you, then why do we need to do to make that, you know, a long process and drag it out? I understand there's life circumstances, there's things and people and whatever to plan around, but it's, it's dangerous for a relationship and it's dangerous for somebody individually because I picked you, you picked me. And now if we break up in two years because, oh, somebody just changed their mind, poof, I invested my heart and soul. I thought we're getting married and now we're not. And two years later, I'm left in a really uncomfortable position and I'm, it's not even like a breakup. It's almost like a divorce. Like I already committed myself to you. We just didn't do it officially, but I did do it emotionally and it's devastating. So if you're going to pick your person, pick your person, move ahead. What, what are we like? Yes, we can move or maneuver around things. So fine. So, you know, make the engagement, you know, push it back a little or move it up a little, make the wedding sooner or later, something like that, you know, somewhere in A year to a year and a half, no more than two years, like wrap it up, seal the deal, let's go. Even in the secular world, it doesn't have to be a very long drawn out process. So when you're dating, if I understand you correctly, when you're dating, there's a part of you that might, or the other spouse, the other partner, um, who might still be looking for someone else, even if emotionally you've decided to marry each other. And once you get married, that questioning completely ends and you can start with the level of establishing your life together. And so the dating process, as you see it, is a necessary and also dangerous time. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's volatile. It, it has the potential to just erupt in our faces and it doesn't, you know, we say it ends with marriage, but the wandering eye doesn't always end. You have to consciously make that end. There was a woman that, um, I knew who got married and then she was on a, you know, whatever, several months into her marriage, she was on a business work trip and somebody hit on her and leaned in to give her a kiss. And she's like, 
it just happened. And she's like, it's like, almost like I forgot. Like I, I got, I'm not in the dating phase anymore. Like we, we actually got married. She's like, I didn't mean for this to happen. So we can't get too used to this dating relationship phase. If we're marriage minded, we have to be heading towards building a relationship and not always looking for the next best and being very sure. I am confident you are for me. I am for you. And I am done looking in the world. The world exists for sure. There's going to be somebody more beautiful than you, smarter than you, definitely wealthier than you from a better family than you. Yes. But I still picked you. You are my person and I want you. And, and that's really where we have to ground ourselves. And it does come more so after marriage. I love that marriage minded forever, that you never take it for granted that this is your one and you're constantly choosing them every single day. I remember uh, when my husband and I got married 20 years ago, um, best decision I made was getting married young and stupid. 20 years later, I can confidently <laughs> say that for sure. Young and dumb. <laughs> young and dumb, the best way to do it. And uh, we got married. We were so young. We didn't know what we were going to do or where we were going to live or what our future was going to look like, but we knew we were marriage minded and knew we wanted to just get married and be together. And I remember at our Sheva Brachas, after we got married, we had, uh, there are different people host for seven days, kind of a, a follow-up celebration for seven days for that new couple um, in, in Judaism. So uh, my husband's best friend, his mother, uh, hosted one of the Sheva Brachas for us. And she was married for a long time and they were still so madly in love after so many years and grown children. Mm. And I remember we looked at her and we said, what's the one piece of advice that you can give us as 21 year old newlywed? So that will look like you in 20, 30 years, still have that spark in our eyes. And, and she said, it's pretty simple. She said, love is a decision, not just an emotion. The emotion is going to go up and down. It's going to change. And if every time you have the emotion of, I'm not feeling it right now, which could be for a million reasons. If you then question, do I really love the other? That's the end of your marriage. But if you have this decision, I love this person. I chose this person. I'm marriage minded, as you say, Eliza. Um, then every single day through the ups and the downs, from the downs will come the ups and you'll end up each up and down cycle getting stronger and stronger. And after 20 years, I think it was the best piece of advice that we got. And thank God still have that spark in our eye and look at getting married at 21 is the best thing we could have done. Um, so being marriage minded is something that it seems from talking to you starts from the decision you're ready to settle down through the dating process and goes all the way through 120 with your partner. Yes, that's exactly it. And I love what you said about love as a decision, not an emotion. We talk about, um, let me see, let me make sure I say it the right way. Love is a feeling that starts with an action, okay? It's not when I feel that I love you, therefore I will come to give to you. It's because I am giving to you, because we are developing this relationship together, therefore I will come to love you. Mm -hmm. So we're not, like you said, waiting for love to exist and... I feel it and I feel amazing. I'm like, yay that you feel in love because tomorrow, like you said, tomorrow you might not. And it's not, it's 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 a conscious decision. I, I love you, yes. And I choose to give to you and act lovingly towards you. My husband and I actually say to each other, we don't say I love you because that's a statement. We say, I'm loving you. And all the English nerds <laughs> and grammar nerds are like, it's not proper English. I said, but it is proper words of the heart. I'm loving you. What does it mean? It means Sounds that like I'm... proper English to me. It's like <laughs> an action. 
Yeah, I'm loving you. I am actively giving to you. I'm actively loving you. Even like sometimes we'll say it will like be having a hard moment and we'll be like, I'm loving you. Like, and that means I'm doing the best that I can do in this moment. This is it. Like, this is how I can love you. This is what I can give to you. This is what I'm capable of right now today. I am in the moment of loving you, of building my love for you and of being with you in this. And it's, it's work. Like you said, it's a lot of work. It's beautiful because so, so much, I think of modern society, so much of how we understand language is the association that we put with it. And uh, when you look back at the Bible, at the Torah, the scriptures, which is kind of where I go to for my information or ideas and knowledge, um, those ancient teachings that were given on Mount Sinai, um, it, it uses the word love, love your neighbor like yourself, love your other. Love is used a lot of times, but it's not used in the way that um, that we in modern language understand or describe it. We're not supposed to be passionately in love with our neighbor. So what does it mean that we're supposed to love our neighbor? Is that we're supposed to give. We're supposed to choose that we're going to be good neighbors. It's We're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to be understanding. We're supposed to be neighborly, as you would say. Um, and, and so many times in, in the Torah, in the scriptures, you know, it says, um, that you chose us, that so many of the words of more of the intimate relationship between God's children and God are actually more like being used as chosen, a decision. And the word love is actually being used for giving, for making decisions as well, but in more of a neighborly way. So when we talk about marriage or children or friends or our relationship with God, this language is so important in determining what actions follow it, depending on how we understand the word. So I love, I'm loving you. I am currently loving you, which means I might not have a heart that's exploding for you with passion, but I'm understanding you and I'm listening to you and I'm passionate about this relationship and I will do everything in order um, to make it work, which I think is the core value perhaps that's missing today in the foundation of marriage. Absolutely. And to add on to that, I think that when we talk about loving our neighbor as ourself, if we dissect that, we have to love ourselves first, yeah. right? So you should love your neighbor. Oh, how should you love them? As yourself, like yourself, you should love them. Wait, wait. Oh, I got to love me before I love you. And so I think that we have this process of falling in love with ourselves and building a loving relationship with and for ourselves. And as we do that, then we learn how to love our neighbor. Then we learn how to love our partner and our children and our communities. And it extends out from there. But I think at the root of it is we have to learn how to love ourselves, act lovingly towards ourselves. And as we do that, we gain all the muscles and all the wisdom that we need to then extend that outside of ourselves. Amazing. So Aliza, you just reminded me of um, someone on your Netflix show who loves their eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> That's Danny. I love Danny. She's very cute. And he's very cute. The two of them with the two good eyebrows are both very cute. Um, but, but it led, I think, to, to some of the reviews and feedback to the show and the people in your show, Jewish Matchmaking on Netflix. If anyone hasn't watched it, I highly suggest it. Um, to this question of what does it look like to love yourself? Um, someone who we see maybe 
loves themselves too much that no one will be good enough or that it's an exterior love of themselves. When you're talking about loving yourself in a genuine, compassionate way um, that leads to good relationships, both in a marriage, in a family, between you and yourself, between you and God, what does really loving yourself look like? So it's interesting that you bring this up about the eyebrows because um, everybody has physical things about themselves that they do and or don't love. A lot of people are very quiet about it um, because the things that they don't love, they definitely don't want to share. And the things that they do love, they're, you know, we do our best not to be too boastful about. Um, But just in terms of understanding Danny and also understanding this concept, she has a very playful nature. And so she also loves fun and things of that nature. And so like, that's why she did the eyebrow thing. It's like one of her favorite features. It makes her really happy. She does it, you know, on Instagram because it's fun because it brings out her joy and it brings out her, her playful side. But we are made up of a body and a soul. We are physical in this world. We exist. And at the same time, we have have something internal that is almost indescribable, but it's at the core and the root of who we are and the essence of who we are. And it is who we are, but you can't even see it, right? I could just see the physical me, but you can't see that spiritual side of me. So when I'm working with people, I do want them to identify physical things on the outside. And it's usually a trigger and a way to then go deeper and to say, who are you? What do you value? What do you actually really want? And Danny talked a lot about family. She was from South Africa. They're very close. They get together for holidays more More of the things that we talked about on the inside, you don't see on the show. You know, you get little clips. We have an hour and a half meeting. (laughs) You get about six minutes of that if we're lucky. And of course, they want to show the playful, fun, humorous side or what they find to be humorous side of things as well. But we are a body and soul. And we can't, we do have to love If I don't love my external and I feel uncomfortable in my own skin and I don't like the way I look and I don't like my eyebrows and I don't like my teeth and I don't like my ears that they stick out and I don't like, you could go through the whole body, right? And I don't like all these physical features. When I walk out into the world, I'm not going to have self-confidence. I'm not going to feel good because I don't even like me. Why would anybody else in the world like me? So there is a certain element where we do have to love and have a love of our physical selves as well as our spiritual spiritual, our value-based selves, and the internal side of who we are. It's just a matter of getting that balance right and making sure that when we're looking for a partner, we have to have physical attraction. It has to exist. To what degree? Okay, that's a whole nother story, but it has to be there. And more important than that, we all know that looks sag, but personality doesn't. Over time, personality gets better. It gets stronger. Who we are, what we value, we dig in as life goes on and and the rest of the body starts to wither away, but everything else starts to sparkle. So we do need to make sure that we tap into the internal more than the external, but that the external is enough to carry us as well. What wonderful advice. Okay, Aliza, we, I could sit and talk to you for hours um, and we will definitely make a coffee date to do that soon, but we are ending the time slot that I have with you. And I know you're really busy, which leads me to the last two questions. Second to last question. You are busy. You've been traveling around the world and you're leaving very soon to literally travel around the world from Australia to California, through America, home to Israel, as the president and CEO of the largest nonprofit serving Israel and the Jewish people 
and a mother of four who travels a lot, I'm often asked how I manage to juggle everything. And so you're one of those few people that I'm able to ask that question to. How do you juggle everything? How do you juggle your busy schedule while being a mother of five children and an incredible wife? Thank you. I hope my husband agrees. <laughs> no, just teasing. We have a beautiful relationship. We're also married for over 20 years. And um, the way that we, and I'm using the word we, not I, the way that we do this is together. So this comes into balance uh, by both of our efforts and by a conscious conversation. So when we moved to Israel two and a half years ago, we spoke about work. We spoke about life. He had a business in America. We decided that that wasn't sustainable. We closed the business and he said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do. Take a sabbatical. You figure it out. Let me try and make a go of my career. Let me try and really do something deeply meaningful and earn a living for the family. And he said, okay. I said, but one of us has to be at home because we deeply value raising our children and we get support, but but we want you know one of the two of us to be home at all times. And I've been home you know, for the last 18 years. And since we moved here, he's been the one that's been at home and he was on sabbatical for the first year. And then we're like, oh, okay, wait, we got to film for the show. Okay, sabbatical for the second year and oh wait the show is coming out i said i don't think in the third year they call it sabbatical <laughs> retirement it, yeah semi-retired retired whatever you want to call it yeah. i don't know what it is but i think that you know you can still do what you love you can have a passion but but i need you to be home so i can continue to do this and we had real conversations and he said um i'm in and this is not my work this is our work so if you see me out in the world doing this this is only because we are able to do this because we are able able to sustain our relationship, our marriage, our family, and to have me doing this. One, of, You know, one of us was going to have to do something, most likely travel and, and do things like that. It ended up being that it's me. So um, I thank God my husband is an amazing chef. He is fabulous at um, keeping everything organized. We have the kids' schedules, and I make sure to schedule in a lot of time when I am home one-on-one um, -on -one time, family time. We go out to dinner. We took the kids go-karting. We've gone wave surfing. It, we go, you know, Fridays are like, let's go to the beach day before Shabbat. Um, we, you know, like we're, we're not beach bums. We tried that the first year and it was too much. And we're like, okay, an hour and a half at the beach. They're like, that's perfect. Like get in, get out, go home. <laughs> it's enough. So um we schedule in our family time. We also schedule in date nights and we go out together or double date nights. Those are our favorite. So we can plan one of those. Amazing. <laughs> guys. Amazing. That's kind of how we do the balancing act. And, and it's a work in progress because right now I'm away about 50% of the time or slightly less somewhere, somewhere between 35 to 50% of the time I travel. I can relate to everything you said and when it works, it works and always to be reassessing what works, what doesn't, and to plan accordingly. So it's amazing how you've been able to do so many changes and endure those with such grace and joy and love. Moving to Israel, doing the series, traveling around the world, raising the children. Um, it's a juggle, and, but it's and this a is also of love. Yeah, yeah, it's a juggle of love. And this is also why um we we've been wanting to um breed our dog and we've been wanting to have puppies it's a part of like what we like we want to see the life cycle I don't just love it for people I love it for animals too <laughs> and um 
you know, you have to time that around the cycle of your dog. And it came up to be a very interesting timing, which was going to be that she's going to give birth this summer and I was going to be traveling. Um, and I said, but I don't want to take that away from our family. Like that's something that's important to us that we wanted to do. We want to have this experience. It's been incredible because we have five children and six puppies. Everybody always gets to hold one. And, <laughs> and we still, I'm going to say fit this into our schedule. People are like, are you, are you crazy? What are you doing? You're traveling. You're not even home. You have puppies. What are the, this? And, and, you know, we've had, you know, health things that have to be taken care of cars that have broken. And there's all these moving parts and like, yeah, and we're not going to give up what we want to do and how we want to live as a family and the experiences we want to have. And having puppies was one of those experiences to nurture them, to love them, to bring more energy into the home. It's actually been tremendous. And we had to get a little bit of extra support. So we've had somebody, um, one of our kids' friends living with us and helping to take care of the puppies and nurture and teaching us everything we need to know. So it's been a really special experience. That's amazing. And one of my favorite uh, verses is Sof the end result always reflects the first thought. And so this was a perfect example of that. We started the podcast with your puppies. We're ending the podcast with your puppies. And Aliza, I ask all of my guests to tell me if they have one go-to Bible verse that in those hard moments when you feel like I have nothing left, I have, I'm having a hard day. Is there a Bible verse that you go to that you can share with listeners that gives you courage and strength? So you, we already discussed it and I'm like, oh, okay. We already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Cause I, to me, it's the most meaningful one, Please. which is that we should love our neighbor as ourself. And for me, love is the guiding principle in my life. I talk a lot about, um, families and children. And also as we raise children, everybody has struggles. I said, but if you love them and they know that you love them unconditionally, right? I don't love what you did. I love you. That behavior. No, I don't love that. That, that, you know, they, as messed up and as challenged as we are growing up, you'll never really have great problems if you have loving parents. But it really goes back to the root of we have to start with self-love. We have to appreciate love, value who we are. Look at the blessings that we've received. Look at the gifts that we've received for who we are. Look at who we are in this world and appreciate the divine that lives within us and go, wow, what a blessing. Now use those eyes to look back out into the world and go, wow, what amazing children and spouse and community members and neighbors and friends. And wow, look at what a blessing I have elsewhere. So when I see the blessing and the love and everything that's within me and I expand that, it's very easy to then go and expand that to the rest of the world. So that for me is my favorite one. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. May we all be blessed with that reality. Aliza Ben Shalom, Jewish matchmaker. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me.